What's going on, everybody? Uh, my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. And shout out to all of the No Limit soldiers who are rocking with us in person. Uh, hopefully, we've been spared from some pretty severe stuff. I think that's later on in the afternoon. And shout out to everybody watching us online. Uh, put it in the chat which number of cup of coffee you're on right now. Uh, by this time of the day, I'm, on, I'm normally up to number two or three. Hey, we're going to be in Psalm 27 today, and it's a scripture that for me was a right now word. So I'm going to be reading Psalm 27, uh, verses 1 through 6, and then 10 through 14. It should be on the screens as well. Psalm 27, this is a psalm written by David. Here it goes. It says, the Lord is the light, is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer, offer sacrifices in his tents with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Skipping down to verse 10. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversary, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the goodness, the Lord's goodness, in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your words, your words to us, which are so faith-filling. Lord, I pray that in these moments that we have right now, that we would, able, we would be able to lock in and to hear your words to us. And Father, I pray that it would transform us. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Now, if you were to go to any bookstore, if you hopped on Amazon, uh, some of the best-selling books and audible books and all these things are about this topic of worry and anxiety. Now, there's certainly no shortage of things uh, to worry about. Now, from the outset today, uh, I, I want to be really super crystal clear about what I'm saying when I mention words like worry and anxiety and what I am definitely not saying. Now, I believe that there are two categories of worry and anxiety. There is a biblical concept of anxiety, which the Bible portrays as sinful. That it, the root of uh, the anxiety that is described in Scripture is a lack of trusting in God, His sovereignty, His control, and His care for us. Simultaneously, there is also medical anxiety. Biblical anxiety should be dealt with biblically. Medical anxiety should be dealt with medically. Now, I've mentioned before, uh, one of my goals and passions is that we would take the stigma away from mental health in the black community, certainly among black men, 
Uh, I have mentioned on a number of occasions, I see a therapist and have been seeing a therapist for the last decade, and I have been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And some of the stuff that we're going to read in this text is super helpful for me, but that doesn't mean we're gonna, I'm going to stop seeing my therapist. And this is certainly not an encouragement to not seek medical attention for those who have medical anxiety. However, all of us have to deal and wrestle with this concept that we see in Scripture of worry and anxiety, things that would make our hearts afraid, things that would fill us with worry and anxiety, the thing that Jesus condemned, the thing that Jesus said flat out, do not worry. Now, when I think about my life right now, there's a couple of categories that I, I tend to worry about. Uh, one is my kids. Sometimes uh, I'll go in their room at night when they're sleeping, and that's when I love them the most. And <laughs> sometimes I look at them, and I just see their innocence, and I say to myself sometimes, and, I, and I'm praying over them, I'm like, Lord, am I making the right decisions with their lives? They're so innocent, and they're so precious. Like, have I done things that have harmed them? I'm not proud of this, but a couple of weeks ago, um, we took my son to Brooklyn Nets camp, and I'm afraid that he will now be a Nets fan <laughs> because I wanted him to get introduced to basketball. The Knicks didn't have a camp, and now I, I might have introduced one of the worst things to, to his life. Uh, but in all seriousness, there, there are so many decisions that go into raising children or being in relationship with anybody, with parents, aging parents, uh, with spouses in school and work. And I, I just sometimes am worrying and saying, Lord, man, like what if we chose the wrong school? Uh, what if we chose the wrong apartment? What if we chose the wrong neighborhood? And sometimes these what if phrases in my brain, these what if scenarios play out and the end result is just full of worry and anxiety. Now, another thing that always <laughs> makes worry and anxiety right next to me and, and kind of lives right next door to me is, uh, as a lead pastor of a church, a lot of times the last decision comes to me. And there's no manual for how to deal with any number of situations. And a lot of times I'm stuck wondering, man, like what if I made the wrong decision? Like, what if I make the wrong decision financially with this church in the direction that we're going? What if I make the wrong decision organizationally? Like, what if we make the wrong hires and all these different things? And when I, when I start to think about what if, man, it really just starts to fill me with worry and dread and anxiety. Now, I was going to ask you to imagine something that you worry about, but I, I'm afraid if I asked you to do that, you would all be lost in your imaginations and you would not come back to me. So I know you have stuff that you worry about. Now, my therapist would tell me to do something called to stop writing the script. Now, one of the things that I do is, I don't know if you've ever done this, when something bad happens or something that is potentially worrisome happens, I start to write the script. And writing the script is basically something where I start to, like a, like a playwright, fill in the blank of what's gonna happen, not just tomorrow, but for the next two decades. So if we choose the wrong school for my sons, then they're not going to do well in middle school, they're not going to place well in a good high school, and they're going to end up in Staten Island somewhere doing their college education. <laughs> and before you know it, I'm looking at this three-year-old, and I'm like, I've written the script of worry and anxiety for his entire life. And my therapist would tell me, Jordan, when you find yourself doing these things, to stop yourself and say, it never goes the way that you think it is going to go. Like, it might not go well, but for sure, it is definitely not going to go the way that you have written it. Now, I've realized in my life 
that I write the script because I still want some sense of control. Writing the script, as terrifying as it is, it's less terrifying than saying, I don't know what's going to happen. So I write the script to try to retain control, and it never goes the way that I thought it was going to go. Now, biblically, although that is helpful to do that, it is helpful to stop yourself from writing the script. Biblically, it takes it much further, and it gives us a way to deal with worry and anxiety in a way that is profoundly different than I think we deal with it, and we don't necessarily even have a category for it. Now, this, this psalm takes it a step further than saying, don't worry about it. What this psalm does is it replaces a very subtle phrase with a more profound one that I hope is deposited in your hearts and mind today. David replaces what if with even if. David, in this psalm, starts to do all the things that my therapist would tell him not to do. And he says, even if, an whole, if a whole army starts to encamp around me, I'm not going to fear. He starts to fill in the blank of the worst imaginable scenarios and says, even if this happens, it's still good. God is still on the throne. Even if my mother or my father forsake me, David says, uh, in, later in, in, in the psalm, in verse 10, he says, even if my father and, and mother abandon me, the Lord cares. Now, David is doing the, the opposite of what articles and things say. He's imagining the worst things that can happen, and he is saying, even if it happens, I have a strategy for dealing with life that can stand up to anything. Now, one of my hopes and goals, personally, is that I would have this type of fortitude in my life, that I could replace what if with even if. And that's certainly my hope and my goal for you as well. Uh, there's an author, a, name, a woman named Vanitha Rendell Risner. She says it like this. Replacing what if with even if in our mental vocabulary is one of the most liberating exchanges we can ever make. We trade our irrational fears of an, of an uncertain future for the loving assurance of an unchanging God. We see that even if the very worst happens, God will carry us. He will still be good, and he will never leave us. Now, this is something that I, I hope you're all going to do this week as you encounter any number of things that would fill you with worry and anxiety. You would replace what if with the dread and anxiety with even if. Now, David gives us a blueprint on how do we actually do that. One of the things I found in my own life is that Sunday morning, with the energy and the electricity, uh, in the moment, I have the emotional energy to say that. And right now, I'm like, I'm feeling good. I guess even if this happens, Lord, I'll, I'll trust you. But Tuesday, usually that slips away a little bit, that emotional energy. And we need a strategy, something that's going to fuel that purpose and that statement of replacing what if with even if. And David gives us a couple of things that I think are going to fuel us in saying this, this strategy of changing what if with, with even if. So in verse three, he talks about this freedom he has. And there are three verbs that he lists in this psalm that I want us to spend some time looking at. Dwell, gaze, and seek. Dwell, gaze, and seek. The first number, number one is dwelling. And so in verse four, David says this. I have asked one thing from the Lord. Let me stop for a quick second. Rewind your prayer life for the last 30 days. Fill in the blank. What is the one thing that you've asked God for? Now, 
one of the things we'll see in this today in the psalm, this nothing negates that God is a good father and God invites us to pray to him for things. So please never hear me say that God doesn't want us to, to seek him, to give us things, to bless us, to move mountains in our life. But the secret that David is showing us today, the remedy is in this first line, one thing. What is the one thing that David is going after? What is the one thing that you are going after? So verse four continues, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire. Let me stop there for a quick second. A lot of times in my life, I have found that a lot of my pursuits of God, my pursuit of anything is all fueled by desire. God never wants to put you in a headlock and, and force you to do anything. Properly understood, the gospel doesn't fuel just you having this distant, lame relationship, but it is something that fuels with a real passion and a real fire, a desire for the Lord. So Dave, David says, one thing I have uh, asked of the Lord, it is what I desire. What is the thing that you actually want? To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Now, there's so much in this verse, we're going to spend the, the rest of the time almost primarily in this verse 4 and uh, looking at what David is saying. Now, what does David mean by saying he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord? One of the things he's saying is he is not speaking physically. So in order to live in a physical spot, uh, he's not talking about living in the temple. He could not have done that because in David's time, only the Levites would have been allowed to live there. And certainly nobody would have been, had access 24-7 to the, 20, to the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. So David knew he was precluded physically from doing that. So David is not asking to be a Levite and to go and to live in the temple. What he's actually asking for is to experience the unbroken presence of God because this is what he is after. He is after the face of God. He says, I want to gaze on your beauty. I want to be in your presence. Now, the house of God signified the place where God's presence, the Hebrew word is panim, um, which means, which is the Hebrew word for face. So David is basically saying is, I want to be in your presence. Now, one of the most profound things is that, like, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. So God is everywhere at all times in equal measures. But God's presence is felt much differently uh, at different times and in different places and spaces. Now, we're all in the same room, uh, be it physically or digitally. And a lot of you I've spoken to, I know you personally. But for those of you who have never met me, you could never say that because you saw me in a room standing on a stage or because you saw me online that you know me. What would require you knowing me is after service or sometime next week at Church and Chill, we pull up and we have a face-to-face -face conversation. In order to know anybody, it, ha it requires this face-to-face -face encounter that's repeated. Now, how weird would it be if next Sunday, you know, at Church and Chill, we're talking and I just start looking down at your kneecaps? And like, I'm just looking at your kneecaps and I'm, you know, if your kneecaps are ashy like mine are sometimes, that would be super awkward, right? You can't get to know somebody by looking at their knees or their shoulders, right? The, 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 the encounter starts with their face. And David is basically saying, the one thing that I want is I want you. I want uh, your presence. And David knew that the face is the relational gate into their heart. 
And this is a secret to a fearless life. This is a secret to, uh, to truly being able to replace what if with even if, if the pursuit, the goal of our life is God and God's presence. When David says that I'll be safe in your dwelling place in verse 5, he's not talking about physically. Uh, he's not thinking of that his enemies have some, somehow lost their weapons. There is something, a higher pursuit that David knows is the one thing. Now, what basically David is saying is, I'm not only safe physically in the dwelling of God, I'm only safe, here's what David is getting at, I'm only safe when the one thing that I want the most in life is something that I have, and that's God's presence. Now, there's an ancient African theologian named Augustine, or Augustine, depending how you pronounce it, um, and Augustine basically said this, all of us struggle with having worry and anxiety. And here's what he says the root of all worry and anxiety comes from. Now, since we have so many good things in our lives, things that we love and desire, really good things that God wants us to view as good, family and relationships and careers that, uh, that are good and friendships and relationships and all the things. But Augustine says, the root of all of our worry comes, the root of worry is when something which is finite becomes our one thing. So what Augustine is saying is one of the things that fuels our anxiety and makes it impossible for us to say, replace, what if with even if, if the thing that actually does fuel us, this finite thing, becomes our ultimate and most important thing. Now, this is the problem with idolatry. Idolatry is not a temple made of gold over there in the corner somewhere. Idolatry is a thing in our life that has become our one thing. It has become the ultimate thing that I have to have this in order to feel significant, in order to feel safe, in order to feel real satisfaction and joy out of life. For me, so often, my idol is success. Uh, I want to be successful. Uh, we can get into different personality types that make me want to be like this or things that have happened when I was a child. Uh, and there is a certain degree to which, to which I believe that God has wired me to accomplish things. And I think to a certain extent, that is like really, really good and can be a blessing to people. It becomes an idol when I have to have success at all costs. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the scripture in John 3 haunts me because John is this man that Jesus is in relationship, Jesus' cousin. And when John has this thriving ministry, when Jesus hits the scene, the will of God for John's life was that John would decrease and Christ would increase in his life, which meant that John's ministry was starting to disappear. And I read that scripture and it haunts me. I say, Lord, what if Renaissance disappeared? Like, is having you enough? That's the question that we have to answer in our lives. Are you enough? Are you enough? Now, again, this does not mean we are not meant to enjoy the good things that God gives us in our lives. Of course, I want my family. Of course, I want uh, good food and relationships and, and success. I, these are, God does bless these things to a certain extent. But when these things become our one thing, when these finite things become our one thing, it is impossible for us to say, even if you take that away, because we cannot take that away. Now, it sounds almost sometimes unfair, or it sounds a little heavy-handed to say, one of the main things that robs us from, our, from deep biblical joy, one of the things that makes it impossible for us to stand as people of faith, uh, people of faith is idolatry, is we have filled something in that center slot that says, I have to have this thing. And by extension, we're saying, God, you are not enough. 
Heaven help us if we live in that place. So David basically uh, in this psalm is listing all of, the, all of these different scenarios in his life that could happen. Um, and again, these are, the problem with idolatry is it, it, it's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And we see this even in verse 10. David says, though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Now, there's nothing wrong between the love of parents and children. And for those of you who have lost parents, you know the heartache of what that feels like to no longer have that. And certainly, it is a blessing to have love between you and your parents. And that is a thing that God blesses. But not even a thing that God created and blesses. God never wants even that to become an ultimate thing in our life. And I think the first thing we would do very well to do is to interrogate in our lives, what is the one thing that is ultimate for us? So David continues in this psalm. And number two, the second thing that we see is that in order to be able to truly replace what if of our anxieties and our worries with even if, we need to gaze. Now, to gaze means to look steadily and intently especially in admiration, surprise, or thought. To look steadily and intently, especially in admiration, surprise, or thought. Now the challenge with looking steadily at anything is a nice shiny device in your pocket. We have all been programmed to have 30-second attention spans. Right now, all of us are algorithmed to death. We, there are companies that spend billions and billions of dollars in keeping us distracted. We have become unable as a culture, of, as a people, to be able to sit down and to look intently at almost anything these days. We're so constantly distracted as, as a people. And I was thinking about this this past week in my own life. Have you ever like closed an app and then opened it again like seven seconds later? You've done that? Yes, that's a sign of addiction. Um, and that's a sign that you actually need to take a break from whatever that app is, delete it, take a week off, because that's, a, that's actually a really dangerous sign that you have been programmed to need that thing. We are so easily distracted as, as people. Hebrews uh, 2 and 1 says this. It says, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Now, one of the great dangers in your life right now is not that you would run away, it's not that you would fall away, it's that you would drift away. Drifting is so subtle. You know, one of my hopes is that this December, you know, Lord knows which Greek letter of the alphabet a variant will be going on this, this winter. Um, but one of my hopes is that it doesn't disturb a trip uh, back to uh, Jamaica to see my wife's family. They have accepted me as their own. Uh, when the Jamaican women's track team are doing well, it's, it's me by extension. <laughs> I have been adopted as a fellow Jamaican. Uh, but one of the things I love about some of the Jamaican vibes, and this is not a flex, it is a little bit of a flex, but not too much of it. Man, I love just going out to the beach in Jamaica, and there's other people who are taking care of my kids, grandmas with kids, so I don't have to deal with them. I could just like lay out in the water and if you've ever been in a beach without kids and you're just able just to lamp and just lay out in the water, if you close your eyes, you'll notice the strangest thing happens. When you open your eyes, you will not be in the same place you were when you closed them, and you wouldn't even feel it. You would just gently drift from one location to another. 
when the Bible says that one of our dangers is that we would drift away, it's saying that there is something about the human condition that is prone to drifting away, which means that if you do nothing, you'll just very gently, very subtly end up in a different place that you did not intend on going to. Now, it is impossible to gaze, to stare intently at, at who God is, to, be, to do what the scripture says if we're just always drifting away. If we're not being very intentional about our actions, um, I think our culture is so full of distractions. Um, one of the things that cameras teach us is that in order to truly have focus, you have to focus on just one thing. You have to blur out the background. Now, Apple is making so much money on portrait mode, which is not anything but a technological computation which blurs everything in the background. They know that the thing is the most stunning. Something becomes the most beautiful and stunning when everything else around it is drowned out, when you can only see one thing. This is what Scripture is calling us to do, to have a life and a rhythm that allows us to be able to gaze, to look, to stare intently, to have time undistracted where we can come to God and to see that. Because if we are not being fueled by this, it's impossible to replace what if with even if. I've mentioned this quote before by uh, Greg McCown in his book called Essentialism. He says this about our culture of distraction. He says, the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. People and companies routinely try to do just that. This gives the impression of many things being the priority, but in actuality, nothing is. We're often distracted because we think we can focus on a lot of things at once, and the result is that nothing becomes our focus, and we are, we're distracted. We're unable to stare at God. And I, I think another reason, uh, and some of y'all who are very sophisticated, stick with me for a second. The other reason that I think it's really difficult to have time where we can appreciate where we can be in God's presence in prayer and in scripture, it's spiritual. There is an enemy that is prowling around like a roaring lion. First Peter 5 and 8 says like this, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Scripture says that one of our greatest enemies is something that we can't see, but it is constantly looking to devour us. There is a, a devil behind the screen, behind the emails, behind the social media, behind the distractions that is attempting to disrupt what God wants to do in and through you. Now, I, um, I played college basketball when I was at Morgan State, and um, we were, out of 320 Division I teams, we were ranked 310. So not, not exactly uh, UCLA or, or Georgetown or anything like that. Uh, but we would get to play against a bunch of different cool teams. And we played against Western Michigan one year. And Western Michigan in the big city of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And we got there. And these were the most studied 
hecklers I have ever been around. We were down by like 30 at the end of the game. And like the second I took off my, my warm up to get back in the game, they like, we didn't even have the names on the back of our jerseys, but they knew exactly who you were, what your major was. Uh, when we came out, they were screaming, Morgan's not a state, Morgan's not a state. And I was like, well, that's actually a good point. There's no state of Morgan. And I got fouled and I was in the game and I was on the foul line and the crowd was going absolutely nuts. And people were screaming at me like, Rice, what are you gonna do with that political science degree? And I was like, man, that's a good question. It's a very limited, it's a very small amount of things you can do with a political science degree. Their goal wasn't to harm us physically, it was just simply to distract us, and it worked. Sometimes the enemy doesn't want to devour you physically through terror and tragedy. Sometimes all he needs to do is just distract you. And we're unable to gaze at the beauty of the Lord because we're so oftentimes distracted. Now the last thing, the last verb that we see here is to seek. David doesn't just say, I want to gaze on your beauty, but he says, I want to seek him. And the word seek is a very specific Hebrew word. Uh, let me reread the verse, verse four, it says, I have asked one thing from the Lord, it is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. This word actually means to get counsel, it means to submit. So what it means is when David is saying, he says, when I come to you, I'm not just after an experience, I'm after transformation. David wants to obey what God has for him. He wants to obey God's will, and he wants to submit to it. In other words, he doesn't just want a mystical experience with God. He wants all that comes along with God as well. One of the great lies of our life is that we are the best navigators for where we should go. We are the best discerners of what we, our life should look like. We know the best about ourselves and that that there's a source of truth inside of us that's immutable and real and true and better than God's will for us. And that lie really does harm us in so many different ways. If we're gonna be able to live a life where we can boldly replace what if this happens with even if this happens, it needs to be rooted in something more than just experiences with God, but in an allegiance and adherence to God in all circumstances. Now, as I was thinking about it this morning, one of the things that the gospel does is, is it presents to us rhetorical questions, rhetorical questions for our consideration, ones that I think, if you think about it enough, it would make it seem almost crazy to not trust God. Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, if God did not withhold Christ, would he not, along with him, also graciously give us all things? Like if God didn't withhold Christ, how could we doubt his intentions, his affection, his love for us? How could we doubt that God doesn't truly have the best things for us in mind and that sometimes we're unable to comprehend what it is that God wants us to have, that God truly does want us to have a fullness, not apart from him, but a fullness that includes him. And sometimes our aspirations are too low. Now, worship team, you guys can come back up. Uh, one of the challenges of... Uh, American Christianity now is that, you know, because of YouTube, you can basically watch a service from anybody and people can uh, consume a lot of theological content um, from all different types of traditions. And there's some really great preachers out there, some that I, many that I listen to as well. 
But one of the biggest dangers to your life is a prosperity theology. Prosperity theology has a lot of different faces. Back in the 80s and 90s, they were promising people cars and different houses. Now, essentially, they're promising you that you can have whatever version of life that you want. If you pray like this, if you do this, if you send this money in, if you shout like this, God will give you whatever it is that you're, you're asking for. And the problem with prosperity theology is not that it promises too much. It's that it promises too little. Because it doesn't give us a holy and perfect and good and righteous God the one thing that we truly need, that if we had him, we'd be able to endure all things. Charles Spurgeon once said this line. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the other room. The scripture says that right now, Christ, he intercedes on our behalf. He's praying for us. If I could hear Christ praying for us, I would not fear a thousand enemies against us. A lot of times in our life, we're too distracted to even be able to comprehend all of these things. And to truly believe that God has the best intentions for us, better than anything we could ever imagine on our own. Now, the biggest scandal that Jesus preached was not anything sexual or physical. It was that he was talking about God as our father. I think about a time when my, my oldest was turning three, and he was at this point and still is kind of obsessed with dinosaurs and how much joy I had in planning his third birthday party. And, you know, we went on Amazon and bought these ridiculously overpriced uh, dinosaur inflatable Pterodactyls are actually not dinosaurs, they're pterodons. It's a whole other conversation. Uh, we bought these pterodons, these pterodactyls, these T-Rexes, all these different things. And I couldn't wait. I could not wait for my son to wake up and to see what I had prepared for him. The Bible tells us that it has not even entered into the minds, the hearts of men, what God has prepared for us. God is a good father. He wants good things for us. And only when we make him our one thing, Will we be able to say, even if you take all these other things away, my heart will not fear. I will still trust you. Let me pray for us. Uh, so, Heavenly Father, we are divided internally. We are distracted by all the things externally. Father, I pray that we would be able to make you, this week, by your grace, by the goodness of your gospel, our one thing and that we would be able to replace what if all our worries and frustrations and fears and anxiety with even if, trusting that you are good and you are with us. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.